Is a successful breeding program something that happens by a stroke of luck, a stroke of genius, or a combination of both? Join Cameron and me for a thought-provoking discussion of breeding philosophies, current ADGA events, and whatever else comes up on our 12th episode of Goat Gab. Welcome back, Goat Gabbers, for another exciting episode of Goat Gab, the podcast. I'm Cameron. And I'm Laura. And today, we're going to be talking about breeding philosophies. Not only just our own breeding philosophies, but um, other breeding philosophies that have been passed along from other breeders. Some of the um, thought process we have when we're thinking about building our herds from a breeding standpoint. It's kind of an appropriate topic for this time of year, I think, because... You know, it's again, it's the dormant season. Most people um, are either not milking very many or, or drying off animals and and most of the breeding's done. And so uh, I don't know about you, Cameron, but when I look out, look out at the animals and uh, my daughter and I were looking out at them this morning and um, I always like watching them eat hay. It's just a happy thing. And uh, watching them out there eating and and she's like, I love looking out there at them. But mom, we have too many goats. So, you know, I think this is an appropriate th- time to sit sit back and look and think, okay, as breeding season is wrapped up and we're looking at kidding season, how are we going to make this a manageable number? I, I agree with you on that. I can see the herd um, right here. I'm up in my, my room that I, I work in, work in here um, and I can see the goats and everything, uh, but I, I look out there and I see there's got to be at least 40 goats in that pen I have. And I'm like, oh, I have to figure out how to get down. But it's hard. Oh, gosh, it is hard. And and um, when I was listening to Nate and John's pad- podcast last week, and they had Donna Pierce on there from Wellbeing Farm, uh, the one takeaway that I took from that, she just kept saying, keep your numbers small, keep your numbers small. And, and uh, you know, I, I think for me, I need to keep that mantra in mind because I enjoy my goats more when I feel like that they're not a huge burden. It's just getting down to that number. You can think of all kinds of reasons to keep keep one or another. So I'm excited to delve into our topic today and kind of explore that a little bit. Yeah, me too. Um, before we go ahead, let's talk about kind of what's happening on the farm. I know I've been pretty busy the last two weeks with uh, vacation. And obviously I went and visited the nobles last week and around Nashville um, and coming back and then um, just kind of getting back into the swing of things. But what's happening on your farm? Um, You know, did a few ultrasounds last weekend were not successful. So I'm hoping that it's just that I was too early and not that uh, the two does that I ultrasounded were open. Um, but, you know, things Again, being a nurse, it's COVID season. So, you know, things are kind of crazy at work with all of that. So, um, you know, don't want to get too political or get into that. But folks, uh, wear your mask if you can. It's uh, it's real out there. And uh, if we can get through this hump, I think after the holidays, I think I think things are going to be a lot better. But, um, you know, that's that's kind of affected my life. So my goats are my happy Zen time out in the barn. I don't have to wear a mask. I don't see them wearing masks and, and uh, it gives me a little bit of an opportunity to relax. So well, how about you? It's funny. You said that we had um, Ramon. I, I, I love Ramon. He lives probably about an hour and a half away from us here. He bought some goats from us last year, he came down to breed some goats. Um, Ramon is an immigrant from Mexico. And so he is kind of have lots of friends down in Mexico in the dairy goat industry. So Ramon comes down, um, you know, probably 
two, three, four times a year. This time he came down to breed some goats. Um, and he just loves just working through the pen, looking at the goats with us and whatnot. So I was out there and I, we, they, we were waiting for the buck to take his sweet time. Um, and what we were, do, what we're doing is just working through the pens and whatnot. My dad shows up there and he's wearing his mask still from school. So it's funny you mentioned how you don't have to wear a mask in the barn. And then my dad was wearing a mask in the barn when Ramon was around. Oh, that's, that is funny. <laughs> yeah. So well, I, I really like when Ramon comes down and Ramon is a, a great guy. Uh, he works through the goats. He compliments them. We talk about breeding things and whatnot there. Uh, and one thing that, that you might find interesting is Ramon has a memory like a steel trap. Uh, Ramon was like um, that that black sun gal buck that um, you, you had. That, that's your beautiful, beautiful. And I was like, yeah, that went to my friend Laura's house. So Ramon remembers back from like March, when, March and April when he came down about the buck that you got from us actually. Oh, that is so cool. I think I met him. I think he was at your um, six ring show last summer, right? Yeah. yeah. Yes, yes, I did meet him. He came by he, and talked goats with me. He was really cool. He he can talk goats with pretty much anyone. Um, and I, I love when he comes down and he, he's bringing another goat down. And he's actually bringing tamales is what he told me. So um, I'm excited for some tamales when Ramon brings some goats down. Oh, awesome. Of course, Ramon will probably get a complimentary breeding for bringing those tamales down as well. Oh, I think that's great. That's cool. Yeah. So Ramon came down this week on the farm. So that, that's always nice. And it's always fun to have somebody to talk goats with besides your, you know, kind of who you run on the farm with there. Um, last week was, um, going back all the way to like Thanksgiving. We trimmed hooves, um, around up there at Catherine's house with her goats. And we probably did like her entire farm, which is like 40 goats, um, between the sables and the togs and the grades. Um, we did some preg checks at her house. Um, I, I will say, uh, eight or excuse me, we preg checked 10 goats. Um, there was only supposed to be eight bread though. I will say that. So you figure that out. Oh. Oh, okay. Well, that happens. <laughs> that's how you yeah. get grades? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I, don't, I, I think they're all, we, we think they're all bred to Toggenbergs. They do a lot of pen breeding there just due to the infrastructure that they have set up with Catherine being in school and whatnot there. Um, so they've got 10 goats bred. Everybody preg checked. Uh, unfortunately, that was like last weekend. Uh, this weekend, Catherine texted me and said, um, one of her goats is in heat and she was one of the lap AIs, but she was one of the goats that oh. we thought we thought was kind of a straggler of the 10 we preg checked. So um, it is what it is. And Catherine's like, do I breed her or not breed her? I said, go ahead and breed her. She's um, going to be seven. I think if I remember correctly, she's going to be seven. She's, um, uh, you know, neat when, you know, would like some more kids out of her. Um, and you know what, that seven and older class, at the national show for thinking about it long-term, it's usually one of the smallest classes of the breed besides the junior yearling. It is. And it's, it's kind of fun. I love that class because I think, I don't know if it's a written rule or an unwritten rule. They never cut that class. And, um, that's the one that I love looking out there and seeing those grand old ladies and looking in the, um, the book that you get that talks about, who the animals are and who they're out of and seeing the ages of them. And, Oh my gosh, that's an 11 year old out there. This is so awesome. You know, it just, everybody always seems to clap a lot for that class. It's a neat class. Yeah, I, I agree with you on there. And we think about the Adkins scorecard on that. And we say, um, we want to see goats that are, are productive and, and functionally stable for a long productive lifetime. Um, and, you know, a lot of those does in that class do have that. And, and I really appreciate that class too. 
Yeah, that's a that's a fun one to see. Well, and you know, I I have I have a doe that I'm really struggling with this year. Um, I bred her AI last year, and she took, and then about a month after she should have been in heat. I noticed a little bit of a red discharge on her bottom, but she didn't ever come back into heat. And um, she had preg tested by blood being bred. So I didn't really worry about it. And then about uh, two months before she was due to kid, she was outside, you know, doing that talking that they do when they're real hormonal. And there's kind of a puddle of red goo on the ground. And so I think, probably what had happened is that she maybe had a missed abortion. You know, she like lost her kids, but maybe didn't lose all the kids and then ended up. So um, I tried, she never seen, she didn't seem like she had an infection. I was careful to take her temperature. There was no, you know, odor or anything about her. Um, probably looking back on it, I probably should have been more proactive maybe with antibiotics or a uterine flush or something. I didn't. Um, she did not come back. She cycled last spring, but did not get bred again. And uh, she came into a good, strong heat on her own in September with the rest of the animals. I bred her in October, and then she started uh, cycling about every five to eight days. So we've gone through treatments with cysterillin, with lutealis, using cedars. Um, last week, I... Um, went ahead and treat or last month I treated her with um, a high dose round of exceed trying to make sure there wasn't something in there popped a cedar in for two weeks and uh, we're following a hormone and cedar protocol hopefully to get her bread she should be back in heat tomorrow so keeping my fingers crossed it's always hard though you know here we are at the end of of December and I'm thinking I just need to get her bread I don't care if she kids in July she's just got to get bread so it's it's always heartbreaking when you have those difficult ones. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Um, and and it's always hard. Um, you know, we've we've done that too. Um, where you know goats not freshening or something like that, and we've got two stragglers still that um, are not bred. And then I saw some kids in heat that are supposed to be dry yearlings. So um, yeah, the same thing kind of on our farm as well is like we've seen some reproductive issues that we may have as well. And then talking with some of my goat community as well, they've seen some reproductive issues as well this year. Yeah. It's, those are heartbreaking. This, this little doe, uh, she was my Christmas present doe from um, my daughter, Elizabeth, um, three years ago. And um, she was fifth place at the national show as a milking yearling. So she's definitely one that we really would like to see in milk again after taking last year off. So, um, you know, it's just one of those things, I guess you just, you get the joys and you get the heartbreaks and, and I'm, I'm sure hoping that we can get this one fixed for sure. So. Yeah, definitely. Um, looking at other things I wanted to talk about here. One thing I really admire and you talked about it and you hit the nail on the, on the head there. Um, with the, you admire them eating hay. And I love doing that because it's our time to really think about what, what goat is going to be hot next year. You know, which ones look, have the look, you know what I'm saying about that? Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so do you find you and um, your dad agree on that or you and Catherine agree on that? Um, Catherine, Catherine less Catherine has, um, you know, some preconceived notions about some different styles that we have. 
in our farm in our barn there um we have a um uh, you know we have some say we have some dry yearlings that we really really like and that did well last year at the one show and and we're like wow we really think these two or whatnot when ramon was here he was looking at that he's like oh who's that alpine i was like actually that's my sable so to me that's a compliment that he thought an alpine or sable was an alpine oh cool so um, it, it is that fun time of year. And, you know, it's always fun to kind of predict who the next hot goat is. What do you think the nicest will be? I will say last year, looking back at my dad nice predictions, we were both wrong. Um, our best yearling in our minds um, is probably our was our fourth or fifth best yearling this year, um, probably from our minds and just looking at them in the barn uh, and alpines. And then Sable, same way. Um, that was due to some other issues with the goat, but – um, structurally she was there though, but, uh, just memory system wise had some, was a little off kilter. Yeah. It's always, it, it, that's what keeps things interesting. I think if you can, if you could pick them out as babies, what would be, what would be the fun with that? You know? Yeah. And I definitely like, we had a wild card goat. We say here, um, probably the best. And I, I was just talking about this the other day, best utter in the barn, but just looks completely different than the rest of the herd. Um, just in structure and style a little bit, but um, nothing to take away from her memory system, just looking different. And that's not a bad thing. It's, she just looks different. Right. And then, so then you have to decide, is this difference something that I want to see more in my herd or is this difference an outlier enough that she just doesn't fit here anymore? Yeah, you're exactly right there. So it's, it's definitely that fun time of year when you watch them eating hay or, you know, you get into the pen a little bit and start working with them here. Um, but also it'll be very different next year when we think about that is because these goats will have – these kids will not even know what a show looks like or how to set up or how to lead because we didn't practice with them or anything and obviously didn't take them to any shows too. So it'll be different next year. Yeah. <laughs> so um, instead of the galloping kid classes, it's going to be the crazy yearling class next year. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I could potentially see that um, for goats that didn't really get out of the barn there. Um, I know in some people, I, th I think of my buddy, my buddy and I was heard who uh, he um, has some goats that never really leave the barn or are a bit skittish. And then he brings them to a goat show. They're usually very nice. However, they've never seen people before besides Craig or his milk help. So uh -huh. I just name dropped him there. <laughs> well, but I've never seen his animals act crazy. Maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit nervous, but um you know, I guess the thing to realize is we'll all be in the same boat next year. Boy, there's been some pretty interesting topics on Facebook. Uh-huh. There has been. Laura, <laughs> which ones jumped out to you? <laughs> well, so one of the ones that came up earlier last week um, was a discussion about, and, and it was just kind of a an out there statement, Nigerian um, herd book open it or don't open it. And I, I was just kind of um, smacked upside the head with that a little bit. Cause I thought I didn't even know that there was an option to open the, the Nigerian herd book. And boy, did that topic bring up a lot of discussion about I would why like it needed to be discussed and also strong feelings, both, both ways on it. I would, I like to equate it to, um, you know, opening the purebred Alpine herd book. And we taught, we both Laura and I are members of the purebred Alpine group on Facebook. And we talk about that. And I think, I don't know if someone posed the question or if it was you, I don't know if you posed the question on Facebook, but it gets messy fast. Oh gosh. Yes. People are very passionate about what 
they believe in, especially when it comes to their goats and how their breeding program is structured and whatnot. I don't really care whatever you do with your goats is your prerogative. Um, as long as you're happy with them because you take care of them every day, um, go, go ahead and do do whatever you want with your with your goats. Um, but as remember, at the end of the day, people are very passionate about these types of topics. Well, they are. And I think, you know, to me, there's a there is a big difference, for example, in looking at opening the American and, or opening the Alpine herd book, for example. Now, OK, I'm just going to throw this out here. Yeah, I wouldn't be in support of that. Yeah, I'm, I I'm think not going to crucify you on the podcast. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's I think there's a lot of um, reasons not to open it. There are a lot of beautiful purebred Alpine French Alpines that that we're not worried about the herd book being too small. And obviously there's tons and tons and tons of beautiful American Alpines. Um, so I don't see that there's a benefit for it. Now, when you think about a breed such as, you know, maybe Sable, maybe Oberhosley, that might be a little bit different. Yeah, I agree. It's a, it's a can of worms as, you know, op- literally opening a can of worms or opening a herd book there. <laughs> but uh, uh, it's definitely a discussion that um, needs to have um, all stakeholders involved with it. Um, whether it's on a Facebook discussion or whether it's an active committee and whatnot. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely a hot topic. Is um, I, I think one of the factors though, looking at the Nigerians, um, I think people are concerned about what's going to happen in 2023 when um, the requirement that bucks need to be DNA tested before you can register offspring out of those bucks. And then what the fallout could be if it's discovered that there are um, improprieties in the breeding behind that buck. Um, Does that throw out a whole line of Nigerian dwarves because you can't breed them up from grades or, you know, there's no American option. And, and I think that was maybe one of the focuses of that whole discussion. So, um, you know, I, I have a lot of confidence in AGA and in the registration committee. And, um, you know, I, I think that they're going to have that figured out by then. Yeah, I agree with I you on confidence. that. I did. I did see kind of, I'm, I'm kind of somewhere on the East Coast. There's a buck that I, I don't know the whole story and I, I wasn't really going to get into it, but I'll, I'll mention it here that um, they're searching for um, progeny of this sire to be like DNA typed because they don't know or something like that. And it's a whole search on Facebook I've seen in some of the groups. So um, it sounds like that discussion or this one of one of those that discussion or uh, this discussion about opening the herd book could have stemmed from that, too. Well, I did see that also. And not being a Nigerian breeder, I'm not terribly familiar with it. But, you know, I think I think something to keep in mind is it could happen to anybody. And, um, you know, thank goodness that we have technology. You can help us determine whether or not, um, you know, an animal's prot or an animal's ancestry is correct. But I also think too, these things happen. It doesn't make somebody a bad breeder just because you have a breeding mess up or a mistake or something's caught somewhere and you just have to go forward and go on. That's why we have, um, pedigrees that's why we have a herd book that's why we have a registry to make sure that there's integrity behind it so it's not it's not being a a negative call on somebody it's just saying that it is what it is and we go on that doesn't make that animal not not a good animal it just says that it's not who it says it was so yeah i i agree i agree with you on that there um 
Uh, also on the face on the Facebook, as uh, my my late grandmother always said, the Facebook. Um, I saw a hot discussion about um, making junior making like a junior bucks division, just like in Dosho. So, or you could earn one leg as a junior if you were a grand champion junior buck. Did you see? What do that? you think about that? Um, yeah, I saw that. I don't like it. I, I don't like it at all. This my my professional my personal. I'll call it my personal opinion, not my professional opinion, my personal opinion. I don't like it. Um, as someone, A, I'm a person that doesn't show bucks. Um, for me, I get no joy out of bringing, you know, a 250-pound monster into the ring and, and attempting to manhandle him for a couple hours at a time um, at those four ring, at the many ring buck shows there. Um, but for me, the value of a buck is in their offspring. It's not in the show ring. Um, so for me, it, it doesn't make sense. There, uh, that's that's just a personal thing. I will judge buck shows, and I have judged buck shows. It's me saying that out there for all show committees that would be listening there. Um, but for 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 me, the the junior bucks, if he hasn't bred anything yet, um, that's a concern. Like we could be, uh, um, you know, giving rewarding animals that might be infertile, might not um, sire, you know, superior offspring. Um, be, just because they win a, a junior buck division. Um, but this has been a big push by the Nigerian dwarf breeders. I know thinking back to kind of what we're starting off with here is Nigerian dwarf talking a lot about Facebook drama on, on Nigerian dwarfs, but yeah. I don't know about you, Cameron. It seems to me like with the exception of Nigerians and probably Nubians, most buck shows are struggling to get official with just 10 bucks counting the baby bucks all the way up to the mature bucks. It's hard for me to understand how um, getting junior bucks, their own division would be beneficial to anything, but maybe two breeds. I would agree with you on that. There might be pockets of the country where you might be able to get, I'm just going to throw out a random breed here, Toggenberg and, you know, enough Toggenberg junior bucks. If you have a large population, if you have a good pocket of Toggenberg breeders in one area, I don't know where that area is for, for the listeners out there, but if you find a pocket of Toggenberg breeders, let me know. I'm curious. Um, but, but, uh, um, yeah, it's, it, to me, it's kind of singling out those two breeds and it could be beneficial to those two breeds. Um, one thing you got to consider here, and I'll say this publicly here is you have to have, um, you have to have, uh, progeny on the ground and registered with ADGA in order to officially, um, um, get a permanent champion status as a buck. You have to have progeny registered. Take, for example, I had an eight-year-old buck that I brought into the herd last year. Laura Laura knows him, um, you mm-hmm. know, very solid genetics and whatnot. Um, but he had zero registered progeny. Eight years old, zero registered progeny. Lady just used him in her backyard, really enjoyed the goats, whatever. And I was like, can I, and he looked super nice for eight-year-olds. I was like, can I bring him out to a buck show? And then I talked to somebody and he's, and they're like, yeah, no, don't bring him out. I want it. Zero registered progeny. You can't finish him anyway, whatever. He went on to a later appraise 92 as a buck, um, which as an eight-year-old buck is, is a tremendous accomplishment um, for him. So um, yeah, I mean, a nice buck, but couldn't really, reg- couldn't really like even justify showing him because of the lack of progeny. So I wonder if you would have shown him and then later registered progeny, because I know you did, would those be retrospective or do they have to have progeny on the ground and registered before they can get those legs? I would think so. I would think they would have to be registered before that. 
Um, I'm not sure there's ever been any clarification on the rule here. I don't have my guidebook handy. I am seeing my judge's packet, though. I don't think it would have that in there when I'm looking at it oh, here. Um, interesting. But, but yeah, I, I don't know. Um, and I obviously, I got him when he was eight and um, came, to my, came to our place as an eight-year-old. Um, zero kids registered, bred him to some does as an eight-year-old. Obviously, you, you had a son and you have a son out of him. Um, so, um, thinking about that, yeah, it's just, it's just interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I don't, it'll be interesting to see if the committee takes, takes that as a recommendation of value and moves forward with it at next year's convention. Yeah, I I agree with you on that. So, oh yeah, just today, just today I was talking about, uh, pricing structure, actually. Do you, Laura, uh, when you go to look and price out your animals, what's your approach to that? Uh, it's hard. Because, you know, there have been times where I've thought, well, so-and-so prices their animals at this, and I think these animals are just as, you know, valued as those animals. Um, In my herd, the highest tier, I guess I'm going to put it that way, because I I don't think I'm I'm not going to mention money, but the highest tier of pricing goes to those does that are bred, who the does themselves are um, superior genetics permanent champions, high appraisal score, like excellent or better, and um, have good progeny on the ground. Those those are the ones that I price the highest. And then it kind of goes down from there. So, you know, does that I have in the herd that um, maybe have produced beautiful offspring, but themselves will never show due to damage or, or another issue, like my doe that has no udder anymore, um, her offspring will be uh, less expensive just because they don't have all the bling behind them. Not that they're any lesser of quality animals. And in some cases they're maybe even better, but I also know that those kind of, those kind of things behind an animal tends to make them more valuable in the eyes of, of people that are buying. So what do you think, Cameron? Um, we, I, I, I wouldn't say we, I have like a mathematical formula, but I'll just come out and spit a number to me. If a doe has achieved permanent champion status, um, and you know, competed against does. Obviously, won her championship. Whatever. Um, that animal's kids are valued at at least six hundred dollars. They've they've shown that they can compete um, against other animals and succeed. So, to me, you can't discredit the you can't discredit the value of a permanent champion status as as a bling there. When it comes, to I agree. Price, when it comes to pricing of animals. So that's my thing there. So take, for example, I may have on, on a normal year. This is not a normal year, FYI, for people that are just waking up into 2020. <laughs> um, uh, in a normal year, we might have a two-year-old that finishes her permanent championship status. So I would automatically price those at $600. Currently, right now, I have a six-year-old um, that, you know, or excuse me, a, a five-year-old that's not a permanent champion. So I would price those kids less just because of how my pricing structure is set up. I'd maybe price them at five fifty or whatever. She might have the same value, but because she doesn't have that, you know, that championship status behind her, I can't justify the price of going any higher. I understand. Mm-hmm. I would agree. So that's what I think as well. Um, also, I try to set a, buy, a base price for my animals. Is you know, if you want, 
one out of a first freshener, here's what the price is going to be. And that applies across the entire board, whether the kid was first place at nationals, whether it's a tri yearling or whether it's a kid that was like 13th place at nationals, it doesn't matter, but because they're a first freshener, um, it doesn't matter how nice they are. Cause you never know what their other is going to look like. And people have gotten, yes. people have gotten cheap goats that are tremendous high quality of animals because they were out of a first freshener. Well, and I think, I think that makes sense. You know, if you look at it from a philosophy standpoint, which I know we'll get to, yeah, your youngest animals in your herd should be your best animals in your herd. Yep. I mean, if you truly are making genetic progression, those should be your best animals. And so, you know, in a way, when you're, when you're buying an animal out of a first freshener, you should be getting the very best genetics out of that herd. But you are taking that risk. The mom, for whatever reason, just won't turn out. So, you know, it's kind of a it's kind of a, a crapshoot a little bit, but one that can really have big payoffs too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you on that. There. Um, one other thing that popped up on Facebook this week, if you hadn't seen, um, we do have a signed contract now for our Harrisburg 2022 national show. So, I know that's a big relief to our uh, buddies out on the East Coast, and and for me too, because. Um, I know that you've got a bigger deal going on that year, Cameron, but I would like to go to Harrisburg. <laughs> yeah, just a, just a small thing going on besides. In, yeah, just a small one. Yeah, just small. Uh, <laughs> don't even get me started on that. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that, that's awesome. And I'm glad we're going to be going to Harrisburg. And, um, you know, you might be thinking about breeding junior dragger links for Harrisburg already. And maybe if Adeline takes with her breeding, I'll have one. Yeah, great. absolutely there. I think knowing that, I think we should just jump right in and maybe save some more stuff for next week here. And can talk a little bit more. Because we had a lot of stuff to talk about. I told you, Laura, I had a lot of stuff to talk about. And I didn't even yeah. get to a couple hot topics I wanted to discuss either. So we'll save it for next week. Okay. That sounds right. great. Breeding philosophy. I think it's a good place to start and say that as a as a breeder – once you get past that one or two years where you're just trying to keep your head above water and figuring out how, how to have goats, I think it's important to have a philosophy. I agree. I agree with that there and and really understanding with what you're working with too. One thing I do want to note here, and this is my personal opinion. I think Laura would agree with this here. Um, Let me know if I'm wrong, Laura. Um, There's no right or wrong way to breed goats. Um, You need to make sure that you breed goats that make you happy. Um, you guys take care of them. You see them every day. You milk them when they're milking, you feed the babies. Um, so if you want to breed, um, you know, a Nigerian to a sable and create mini sables, I'm not going to judge you. Um, I'm, and I probably won't judge your goats either because mini sables are not accepted yet. Um, but I'm not going to judge you on that. This is just kind of our philosophies that we've developed over the years as goat breeders and whatnot. So, Breed goats that make you happy. That's my that's my first philosophy there. And you know, that's something that goes right along with what I've tried to teach my daughters, which by the way, um, I'm going to digress here a little bit, Cameron. You're, you're fine. My, my kids have been giving me a really hard time because they said it seems like that I only mentioned that I have one daughter and that's Elizabeth, <laughs> but I actually have three daughters. So um, Madeline and Caroline, a big shout out to you guys because they are just as involved with the dairy goats. They've They've hoiked just as many bales when we need to load up hay. They show, they they kid babies, they feed babies. 
Uh, they trim hooves. They're, they're great helps too. So I apologize for seem, seeming like that I ignored those two other two other girls in my life. And I also have a really amazing son, Stephen, who does not like the goats, but he's a pretty awesome guy. So a shout out to all my kids. I love you all. You're all pretty. So let's go. <laughs> well, I know Madeline's helped us on the podcast a little bit with like, has helped you with editing and stuff and whatnot. Yes. And then, yes. And then Caroline, obviously when you can't be around due to work or whatever, she takes care of the farm on the weekdays because she's still living at home. Correct. So yes. Uh huh. She all, is. So all vital pieces uh, of the puzzle that is dairy goats and having a podcast too. Well, they are. And the reason why I'm bringing them up, you know, just because maybe somebody else has different goals or a different vision uh, doesn't mean that yours is any less valid and it's not something that you should pursue. So know what you want and uh, you know, do, do what makes you happy. All right. Uh, let's, let's go ahead. I'm, I'm just going to dive right in here, here. And I know I kind of listed them out, but I'm not going to follow that list order. Um, I'm going to talk about one of the breeding philosophies that we had, especially with our La Manchas, when we had our La Manchas is I like this dough. So I'm going to get a buck out of this animal. And this is a lot of people's kind of first reaction when they start diving into goats is I like this dough. Um, so I'm going to get a buck out of them. So that's kind of like my first breeding philosophy is like, um, I see a goat, I see a dam, um, and I, I see, okay, I like that. I like the traits they have. I like the rear udder. I think they can improve that in our herd. Let's bring that buck in. And obviously, Cameron, that served you guys well because, you know, hello, national champion. I mean, yellow bird, you know, you, you did really well with your La Manchas. So I would say that that was a successful philosophy. Yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty good. It allowed us to bring in certain traits that we wanted to, and and most of the time it worked out. Sometimes it didn't. Obviously, genetics is a Pandora's box. Um, to to me, um, and we kind of take this approach too, and and we kind of took it when we started breeding alpines as well. Is, um, you know, we if we like a goat enough, we want to bring it in. Um, with the alpines, it's completely different than the sables and La Manches are, uh, because a lot of the purebred stuff actually ties back into what we've done in the past or whatnot, because we uh, choose the line breed, which we'll talk about that here in, in a little bit. But um, yeah, I, that to me is kind of the first, you know, sub point when we think about breeding philosophies is the philosophy of, I like this goat, so I'm going to get a buck. Cameron, do you feel like that that, however, is more successful in some breeds than maybe in other breeds? Yeah, I agree with you on that. I think in, in larger breeds with larger gene pools, um, Nigerian dwarfs um, and um, Nubians, for example, you you really, you know, in my opinion, and I, again, I say this as an opinion, you can't really go ahead and do that because there are certain lines that don't cross well together because of the a massive amount of the gene pool that's out there. I would agree with that. I was Those were the two breeds in the back of my mind that I kind of thought of. Yep. And then obviously we breed this subset of Alpines, the purebred French Alpines too, where, um, you know, we really, we might really like, um, I'm going to pick on a herd. We might really like a a Redwood Hills, um, animal. Um, I'll I'll pick on one that's fresh on my line. We might really like rain boots. Rain boots was a national champion, beautiful doe. Um, and I, I know she could bring probably um, more height to the rear order to our herd and more extension of forward to our herd. Tremendous mammary system on that doe. But the thing is, because we breed purebred alpines, I'm not 100% sure I'd want to bring that in because I don't know how that's going to cross. Right. Yeah. You know, setting the American part of it aside, it's hard to know that sometimes. Yeah, I agree with you on that there. So the I like this goat, so I'll get a buck out of it. 
Um, and that played well. Um, I'll tell you a story here, and I'm sure once we get my dad on the podcast, he'll tell this story too because he loves telling this story. Um, he picked out a goat and at a national show that was like 17th place yearling at the national show. And uh, he's like, I need a buck out of that goat, whatever. He just he just knew he needed a buck out of that goat. The next year she won her class at the nationals. <laughs> so so he, he took the approach of I like this goat, so I'll get a buck out of it. And bam, it really obviously it paid off for him. You know, I think though that philosophy fits well with advice that I often give to new breeders is as soon as you possibly can get to a national show. Because I know that in my little tiny herd, um, an influential buck that I brought in, I never would have known about uh, this buck's dam had I not gone to a national show and saw her in person. And I'm like, this is, there is something about that doe that I need. I want that in my herd. Um, so I think when you go to a national show and you see animals, and especially if there's several from one herd, when you see that, I like this goat, so I'm going to get a buck. It's easy to do at a national show. It gives you a larger pool to look at to find something that you fall in love with. And it's really easy at a national show too, because everyone's in one confined space. Um, everyone's in one confined space. You're there all week. You can talk to people. Um, there have been times where I know people have um, walked out of the class of the, at the national show and people are giving them checks for, for deposits on bucks. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so uh, they, it is a great place there. And, and unlike, you know, many regional shows that some people go to is you only get a smattering of what's available in the region there, um, which that's generally where breeders start out with goats is, you know, they look at regional shows and they go there and they find people and they find mentors and et cetera, et cetera there. Um, but, but going to a national show, you can really see what might be available across the country and what might be best if you're interested in, in um, develop, or, uh, diverting the resources towards that. Exactly. I agree with that. So, so the, I like this goat, so I'll get a buck approach um, is, is generally the first one. Laura, what's, what's the next type of philosophy you kind of believe in there? Well, um, so a data driven approach is one that, um, you know, especially if you're one of those people that really likes to um, look by the numbers when you're breeding animals, uh, we are so blessed to have the agogenetic site and be able to um, look at animals on a number, you know, let the numbers draw the picture of the animals. You know, if I, if I wanted an Alpine buck that was going to improve um, production, I can go there and find out what buck is number one for production right now in the United States or what buck is number one for production in all times. And, and how can I incorporate that in my herd? Um, and along with that, then you can also say, oh, yeah, shoot, he was really high in production, but maybe there was a trait that he threw heavily along with that that you need <laughs> to take you know, keep in mind. So I think, yeah. you know, I think looking at the numbers, it's really awesome to have those kind of tools to be able to do that. Uh, additionally, one thing about this data-driven kind of breeding decisions approach, breeding philosophy approaches. Um, you know, if you're a member of ADCA Plus, if you participate in LA, LA or DHIR, you're already collecting the data. Put that data to use um, and use the tools that you're paying for in order to better your herd. So that's a really cool thing that you can you can say that because, um, I mean, you can collect all the data you want, but if you don't use it, um, then it's it's wasteful. On that note, sometimes, sometimes 
you can't breed animals by numbers because there is an art to breeding animals. And so um, I don't know about you, Cameron, but I've bred, oh, probably five or six national champions on paper. Yeah. At or least top 10 on paper, you know, because yeah. it, it should work out. You think it's going to work out. And then the animal gets here. You're like, oh, that didn't work out, you know? Yeah. So um, that's, you know, that's one of the, the down things about just using data is sometimes sometimes those numbers don't paint the picture that you think it's going to. You're, you're absolutely right. There are some things that we, we can't quantify. Uh, we can't, you know, quantify, um, you know, the amount of the, the, the angle of the bone that when it comes to the ribs arching back to the flank, we can't really quantify that. We can't quantify the, the, the barrel on how it looks on the side. You know, we can't really quantify a lot of some traits of deer goats. We can quantify some, but we can't quantify them all. Um, well, and I, I think about traits, traits like um, aggressiveness at the feed bunk, uh-huh. you know, maybe not you know, assertive. That's what I want. I want an animal that's assertive. You know, there's, there's no way that you can have that picture or an easy keeper. Yes. Um, that balance between being able to put it in the bucket, but also not totally at the cost of their own uh, body conditioning. Cause those animals are really difficult to manage, I think. So, um, yeah, there, there are a lot of things that you can't put a number to when, mm-hmm. when you're looking for that program. I remember going back to a Facebook post that um, a California goat breeder, uh, I won't say who it is, put out there. And he said, what do you think is going to affect your breeding program more this year in 2020? Will it be shows or will it be not offering linear appraisal? And as we know, some shows did go on in 2020. Not a lot of people said linear appraisal. Um, and lots of people commented on the show. It's just, you know, that's fun and it's great. And I agree that shows are very fun. But one of Laura's neighbors uh, within her her pocket or geographical pocket um, said that L.A. would be more detrimental to their herd, not collecting those numbers. And it goes to show that some breeders are starting to use that data that's collected from L.A. and piecing it together year over year in order to determine which traits are actually being affected um, by this. Um, and I, I totally agree with him on, when it comes to data-driven approaches and philosophies when it comes to breeding. I would agree with that too. I was lucky that I did get to attend some shows last summer. You know, A, given the fact that those shows were kind of smallish in scope, you know, there, there were a lot of them that didn't have the usual usual exhibitors, the usual competition in them. Um, but B, shows are great, but we all know that you can finish a doe that maybe wouldn't be finished in one part of the country that's finished somewhere else. So I like the more level playing field that linear appraisal offers and the fact that, you know, you do have that data that you can look back on. I think that's so valuable. And I would agree with the person that said that they felt like the lack of linear appraisal was the biggest impact this year. Yeah. I agree on that. And one, one other thing here, thinking about data-driven decision or uh, um, breeding decisions here, is there's not a lot of data collected out there. I mean, LA, you're collecting once a year. Um, if you're getting appraised every year and you're, you're fortunate to be in that area of the country that gets appraised every year. Um, I would say Illinois and, and Missouri are lucky enough that we at least get two out of three years, if not three out of three years when it comes to LA, correct? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I would say we're, we're, we're blessed to be in that area of the country. However, if you live in North Dakota, if you live in Alaska, even you're not, you're definitely not able to get an appraiser up there, you know, maybe every three years or so. Right. And that's, you know, there's some beautiful animals in those parts of the country too, that, that are just totally missing out on it. So that certainly is a limitation to just strictly looking at things from a data driven 
aspect. Yep. One thing as well I've noticed is when I look at that agogenetics, and maybe you want to look at it next time here, um, when you're looking at it and you're doing go plan pedigrees, et cetera, there, um, there's a reliability factor as well. And sometimes we just don't have enough data collected in order to get a good reliability number. So they might have, you know, maybe I'm looking to, I'll, I'll take my goat. There's a goat out of the pen here um, that needs to be taller, needs more bone. And you know, maybe he has a great strength score. Maybe he has, you know, maybe he it makes them taller at the withers uh, when we look at those traits, but maybe his reliability is only 45. Right. And he may just have two daughters that happen to be full siblings that have given him, you know, that really high score. So how is that going to relate to your herd that might be totally unrelated? You're exactly right. You, you need to, when you're looking at making data, data driven decisions, you're looking at, um, the amount of goats scored, how many different herds it's been, they've been scored from, and then reliability as well. So that's just some, some, some considerations there, but I know a lot of people that would do do that. I mean, it works out well and they've bred probably national champions and had success there on right. Trying to using a data driven um, approach. to Absolutely. And you know, um, Ben Reptius is a breeder that I really admire some of the way that he looks at things. He had said something one time about um, only breeding for production. I mean, really just kind of ignoring everything else and just looking at production and what would that look like in a herd? And I've thought about that, you know, um, especially when you feel like that you've got the structure part down correctly or the, a structure that you like. What if you only spent two or three years strictly breeding to the, to the bucks that have the highest production potential? What would that do? Um, in the long term for quality in your herd. So, you know, another thought there too. Ben is always um, an interesting guy to talk to. Definitely brings a different perspective. I um, really admire Ben just for the different perspectives he brings. He's got um, dairy experience working, obviously, with Redwood Hills. He grew up on a dairy goat farm in Virginia, then moved to California. He worked with the White Whale Farm. He worked with Stephanie Rovi at Grande, I think it's Grande Ronde in Oregon there, and they have a huge dairy there. So tons of dairy experience. Now he's working at UC Davis, obviously, right now. I'm um, so ten tons of dairy experience and definitely someone that thinks outside the box when it comes to breeding dairy goats. Yeah, it's it's always it's always an experience to learn from what he's having to say. Yes, absolutely. There. All right. Um, looking at the next approach here of breeding philosophy, um, I call it the feel approach. You just feel the breeding is right. Did you ever have that? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, for sure. And I think sometimes. Go ahead. You can't really put a finger on it. No. It's just something your gut tells you, eh, I think I'm going to make this breeding. And I think a lot of it comes from intuition, just knowing either how lines cross or whatever there. Um, I don't know when we bred one of our, we bred Fancy, who's our only doe, Alpine, um, as an outcross to Saga, Pleasant Grove Super Saga, four-time premier sire at the national show, um, a buck that did tremendous things in our herd. Um, but because it, it, that was kind of a field breeding there. I think it would feel pretty good. There's a lot of, well, I mean, Fancy's yeah. a beautiful doe yeah. and, you know, has a lot of cool stuff behind her and, uh, you know, same with Saga. So yeah, I would, I would feel good about that kind of a breeding. Yeah. Too. A lot of it's based on intuition. Um, and I see this all the time and the date when I looked and correlated the data, I was like, okay, Fancy generally needs to be a little bit taller. I mean, she's not the biggest doe. She's not the smallest doe, but she's not the biggest doe. She's more of a moderate size. I'm like, she could probably be a little bigger. Saga doesn't do that, um, uh, but but some of the other traits, 
really matched up well, but I think the feel approach is just, you're just, you're just feeling it. Right. And I think, you know, I think too, on that feel approach, you have to have a little bit of a perspective to be able to, to be successful with that. Mm-hmm. Um, at least know something about the lines that you're working with. I'm not saying that a total, total close your eyes and um, open the pen and put them in together approach isn't going to turn out some good stuff sometimes, but you probably need to have a little bit of a backing for that feel. Yeah. But, you know, again, in the end, the be- most successful breeders, they're artists, they're genetic artists. They kind of know what they've, what they know. And um, a wise ag teacher once told um, my late husband, if you can breed animals, if you can breed one species of animals successfully, you're probably going to be successful in another because there is just that art artistry part of it that you learn what breeds well with something else. So that feel approach certainly plays into that. If you're a new breeder out there, I don't suggest the feel approach. Would you agree with that? Yeah. No, yeah. I, I, I give yourself some time, give yourself some time to develop that gut feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I, I know when we sit down and we do the breeding list and we probably there's lots of approaches to making a breeding list. And I think we can have an episode just on how people develop a breeding list because uh, there's so many different ways on how people do what they do. Um, but when we do that, we we use a comment. We really take the feel approach there and we look at all of our options available too, um, and not only just options that um, – we have either in our tank or in our buck pen, but um, that we have might have in the region. So we might, um, you know, get a partnership with um, a, a farm that's around us. So for example, I take advantage of my strategic partnership uh, with my fiance um, and go and borrow bucks from her. Um, and that, that really, the field approach there really, really helps there too, because that, so really when you make that breeding list, um, really think about the field approach first, and then you can maybe look at a data driven decision way or, um, and whatnot there. So, you know, thinking about other approaches, line breeding is one that you hear people talk about so often. And I always kind of get a chuckle when I see the meme come through on Facebook. Um, it's line breeding when it works, it's inbreeding when it doesn't, <laughs> which, which is somewhat true, but, um, line breeding, I feel like has done, the most for me in my herd. And it's a philosophy that I find myself going back to over and over. How about you, Cameron? I agree. Going back to the well, as people would say there, um, I find myself just this year. I mean, obviously we're bringing back saga, which was successful, you know, in the um, late two thousands, early 2010s ish. Um, we did a, we did a breeding to a buck by Hoach's California gold this year. Um, I, he was successful with us in the, in the nineties, um, so really going back and like kind of trying to find a way to accentuate those traits that we already have with line breeding um, and continue to keep our lines tight is something we do with our alpines a lot. And I think, you know, if you are, if you are beyond, again, beyond those first few years where you're just trying to figure things out, I think line breeding is the quickest way that you can set your own type in your herd. Um meaning that when people look at your animals, they say, oh, that's a such and such goat, you know, just by using line breeding um, and getting that consistency in your herd that you need. Yeah. And I will agree as a judge too, you can tell that too. Um, You can, you can see, you know, obviously again, I'm going to pick on us here, you know, maybe Cameron and or Ed or Catherine aren't showing the goat, but if I have another handler that, you know, is not, 
known for running around with us and it has our look, people might assume, okay, that's a, that's a Kikuku Valley goat, you know? And that, that does happen when you line breed a lot. Um, I will say in the Sables, though, it's a little bit different in, to line breed uh, because the gene pool is so much smaller. So how does that work out, Cameron? Do you do you happen to see with Sables maybe more of the ugly side of line breeding? Um, I wouldn't say ugly. I wouldn't say ugly side of line breeding. We get some, you know, we get some misses when we line breed uh, when it comes to Sables, but we find ourselves doing a lot of outcross too. Um, you know, bringing in, obviously we have a, a buck from um, Jamaica Kids um, and they obviously don't race Sables. So that came from a sauna kind of a complete outcross there to some extent. Um, there is some old, older stuff in the back in, in the back end there of the herd that, um, you know, kind of brings, makes our lines tight ish, but not super tight. And then we brought in a herd, uh, a buck that Catherine owns, um, from a herd in Tennessee, um, which goes back to a lot of noble spring stuff, um, that, that ties things in there. It's a little bit of an outcross as well. So we, we do a mixture of line breeding, um, with, also with some feel approach as well when it comes to the sables, um, because we, we, we don't, you know, the sables are so wide open. I'm trying to think of the best word. The sables are so wide open with what to do. Um, and obviously, uh, Cliss Foster has had a lot of success with the sables, but, um, when it comes to breeding sables, there's no true tried and true playbook yet. Right. I think that would make it, um, fun and then also frustrating at times. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the challenge is everything. Um, and I, I know my dad really, really loves the challenge of breeding sables. I, I could see that. Yeah. I could see yeah. that would be fun. Yeah. Uh, anything else on line breeding we want to talk about? You know, just the fact that, um, you know, having a small herd and not always having room to keep bucks, in my herd, it's not uncommon for me to breed everything to one buck in one year or everything but maybe two animals that I happen to settle AI to one buck. Um, and that's been good and that's been bad. Good from the fact that I can really see what that buck does. My damn lines, with the exception of one doe, all go back to one doe. So I'm really tight on the damn side of things. So when I bring a buck into the herd, I either want that buck himself to be fairly tightly line bred looking at maybe a 10% or higher um, inbreeding coefficiency when you run it on the agogenetic site. Um, if I'm bringing an outcross buck in, I really would like him to be um, tighter, more tightly bred. Um, or I'm bringing in a buck that has some lines that are already uh, line bred with my maternal line, but bringing in something different. It's been very rare that I've brought in an absolute total outcross. Um, Sometimes that's a good thing and sometimes that's not. But I, I do tend to try to keep my bucks more tightly bred than what my does are if possible. How do you um, feel about that? Does that make a difference to you, Cameron? Um, We're not really, and I hate to say this because we, I mean, we have all the tools available, but sometimes we just don't use them as well as we probably should. Um, We don't use a lot of like the, the line breeding coefficient stuff when you plug it into epigenetics. I, I love it. It's a great tool. It's a wonderful tool in the toolbox, and I, I don't use it as much when I'm planning things out. Maybe maybe because I'm really focused on like a feel approach or something there um, instead of just focusing on straight line breeding. But I, I agree, keeping your lines tight there. And when you bring an outside buck, you really need to look at, um, if you are going to line breed, how does that cross into that there? Is there a, a common ancestor that's kind of weaved through there? Uh, we 
when we in alpines for example in our herd we look for the common ancestor kind of being some hoaches stuff in particular a doe by the name of hoaches srs lyric um lyric was a phenomenal doe. i think she was a reserve national champion i don't think she was ever national champion i'd have to look at the spreadsheet for that but um we look for kind of that and that line there to see if it'll cross well because we have lots of hoaches lyric stuff in our background if you're considering doing line breeding which you know is highly effective for some breeders out there um make sure you do the research when you're bringing in an outside buck figure out how they're all intertwined and related to your current herd especially if you are in a breed with a larger gene pool well yeah and you know you don't you don't want to bring in something unwanted i mean there are i hate to say this and um but it's just a fact of life. There are some nasty things that can pop up if you breed too heavy on something like extra teats or color problems. If you're working with a color breed. So you, you have to kind of know what's back there. And do you really want to double up or triple up or, or line breed on that, knowing that it could bring that potential problem in there too. Yep. I agree there. Um, and yeah, that's, that's the truth. So right. one, one of the things I put on our list, Cameron, was copycat breeding. So, and you and I haven't had a chance to talk about this, but I want to throw this out here as an idea. Looking at a successful herd, for example, and uh, let's look at Redwood Hills. What has worked for them and how could I maybe copy off of those lines um, with things that I have available to me, maybe through AI, maybe through um, some local animals that are related to those and try to make that same kind of a combination of breeding to hopefully get the same kind of successes. And uh, I know that it's worked well at different times for this breeder. I've tried it and have had some successes and some, eh, yeah, that probably didn't work as well as I wanted kind of a thing. Have you ever bred by looking at what other people have done and, and seeing how that's worked for them? Sometimes I, I will say um, I'm trying to wreck or uh, kind of ravage my brain here and think, um, you know, there have been times. So I'll, I'll pick on the Sables, for example. We have a foundation, no Ockerberry, um, national champion, reserve national champion, junior national champion. Got her for free. Um, if you haven't heard that story, it's, it's somewhere on one of the podcasts. I think it's probably episode one or something like that, um, uh, how we got started in Sables. Um, but um we have tried to kind of recreate her, as we've called it here. So we picked up semen from her sire, uh, road base, obviously. Um, and then we've tried to do some recreation tools. So uh, we had a sister. We had a, a half-sister of Ockerberry on the maternal line. They're uh, Mocha Berry. Um, lots of berries here. <laughs> it's a very good story. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, so we tried, to, we tried to breed her sire to her maternal sister to try to recreate something there. The AI didn't stick, but um, that's how we've tried to thinking about copycatting there. So it's 75% of the same goat. Right. Yes. That's exactly what I mean. You know, trying to, or uh, like in my herd, I have a, a doe that I really like. She was a three-year-old um, that is very pretty. And I actually I happened, I owned her, I own her mom and I own her sire I also owned a full sister to her sire and I have seen them in, out of a litter mate to the dam. So I could, I, my goal was to make that same breeding, but just reverse it. You know, the genetics that were on the sire side are going to be on the dam side and vice versa. Uh, it, it, I didn't get kids out of that breeding, but that's something that I've thought, you know, sometimes that's a good thing to do too. Um, breedings that you've seen work in your herd or other herds, try to repeat that. and. Uh, 
maybe get the same kind of success there. So it's yeah. another philosophy to consider. No, I, I think I've, I, you know, I've seen it work well. Um, and maybe again, I hate, I hate to pick on Alpines and really dig into Alpines, but there's one herd. And when you look at um, the Windrush herd, obviously they had a tons of success with their, their mischief and, and Mimi um, crossings there. And then they did lots of, they tried to breed um, similar goats to that there. Um, and then they found success when they bred um, mischief and Mimi to, um, Neo marks. Yeah, yes. Neo. yeah. Neo. Yeah. They're buck. They're buck Neo. Um, and found success there. So they've, they've really accentuated on those crosses there. Um, I have a full brother. I have, I have a son of that cross. You've got, um, a grandson of that cross, correct? No, I have. So you have a, a mischief Neo, right? Yeah. Yes. I have a mean, I have a Mimi Neo. So, so our, our bucks are a hundred percent the same genetically. Right. Yes. But different phenotypes, obviously. Yeah, they do. Yeah, very much. So it's just interesting to see that and, uh, and how that plays out. And yes, um, genetics are a fun thing. It's never a push button, never a push button result. Never a push and Rosette comes out here. Laura, you've got your dream plan. Talk about okay. your dream plan when it comes to your breeding philosophies. So as a young adult um, at a period of time where um, my herd consisted of one Alpine and one Nubian and I was starry eyed and um, young and actually was um, engaged to my uh, first husband at the time, who was also from a goat family. Uh, we went on a road trip from Missouri to uh, Northern Florida. He was in business and, and needed to go on that. And we happened to stop by and see some goats on the way. And I don't even remember what herds we visited, but it was kind of fun. So anyway, lots of hours in the car and we could sit and talk about breeding dairy goats. So we kind of came up with this dream plan of what we were going to do for our herd philosophy. And while I haven't always stuck with that over the years, it's been pretty close. So I'm just going to share this for um, your thoughts on there. Um, when you freshen yearlings, and of course, in order to make it to stay in the herd to be freshened as a yearling, you have to have at least decent confirmation, um, you know, be growing well, at least uh, decent feet and legs, because we all know that's just the foundation that if you don't have it as a kid, you're probably not going to have it ever. After they make it to that yearling year, um, animals are culled from the herd, um, not on production because they're just yearlings, but only on confirmation. So they need to have a mammary system that is decently attached. You know, maybe there are some things that you look at that udder and you think it's going to go ahead and, and grow up and, and change with more capacity or another freshening, but the, the basics have to be there, but we're not really looking at production. By the time that the animal is a, a two-year-old, they should have a good balance of production and confirmation. Um, and you can usually get an idea as a two-year-old if they're going to be a decent animal, especially if that's their second freshening. Uh, first freshening two-year-olds go back into the whole yearling, the yearling approach on there. Uh, by the time they're three, we would expect that animal to have the confirmation and the correctness and memory system and everything else to stay in the herd. But we're going to call on production at that point. A three-year-old should be producing you know, about at her peak as a three or a four year old. And you kind of have an idea. Do you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with that there. And I've maybe even stretched that to four, knowing that's kind of the um, time that a, a doe meet reaches full maturity from my experiences is four is where they might stop. Um, 
But I, I agree with you on this, actually. Now, so this is where it gets a little bit more challenging, especially in my herd, because, you know, like most of us, I get attached to the goats that I have. Yeah. Um, you really don't look at them again until they're a five-year-old. And that five-year-old age is a pretty important age. They should hopefully have their championship by that time. They should um, have their production record set and it should be respectable. But uh, my husband argued for the fact that if by the time they're a five-year-old, if there is not a breeding that you've made with that doe that you would repeat, you really need to consider whether or not that animal is a good fit in your herd. And uh, that's, that's a hard decision to make. But his, his point was that, you know, a five-year-old still has several productive years ahead of them. And if they've, if they're nice enough to have made it into your herd to that point, but you, there's nothing you would repeat out of that breeding, they're not really offering anything to your, to the progress that you're making, but maybe they could do something really positive for somebody else. So that's, that's kind of the dream plan that we came up together. And the other thing was no more than eight milking does in your herd. Ah, uh, okay. Uh-huh. That I've dismally failed on. <laughs> but um, what do you think? You think that could work? I'm thinking. You, you got me thinking here. I'm trying to think, okay, I have, and I'll just throw it right with the same. I have Holy. She's five now. Do I have a proven breeding? Yes. Okay, I have happened. Do I have a proven breeding? No, she's gone. <laughs> So yeah. I'm like, wow, that's uh, that's thought provoking. Now you know you can always say, well, I don't have a proven breeding out of this animal because she never gave me a doe kid, or because I never made the right breeding with them. Really, did you really just never make the right breeding with them, or is this animal really just one of those animals that's beautiful in her, of herself, but is not ever going to do for your herd? what you need. And is she taking the place of somebody else in your herd that could get you to that next level? And so just something to think about. Yeah, that's definitely something to think about there. And um, yeah, eight goats. Wow. That's not a lot. <laughs> well, and at that time, um, three-year-olds and four-year-olds were usually thrown into the same class. Yeah. And so our thought was you would have two milking does for each class. You know, you'd have a yearling, you'd have a two-year-old, a three to five-year-old, and then an age doe. So now that they're usually split out, you could you could argue to increase that to 10. But, um, you know, his thought was that with 10 milking does of that high caliber quality, you could still make an impact even at a national show. You're exactly right. And I, I kind of talked about this with Catherine the other day. We were talking about it. He's like, if you, if you bring... 24, 25 Toggenbergs and they're all bred or not even Toggenbergs, any breed to the national show and you do fairly well, maybe, you know, top 10 with all of your goats, you're going to put yourself in success for premier breeder of the, of the breed just because of the sheer quality of numbers you have there. I'm mean, that's thinking about it purely from a points perspective when it comes to that award. Right. Yeah. I, so, you know, I think it could be done. I think it could be done. So, yeah. no, that's, that's a good perspective there. And I, I really like that. I'm going to think on that. I'm going to, I'm going to reflect <laughs> on, I'm gonna reflect on that. And um, maybe we should have a follow-up episode where we reflect on this and I realize I've been doing this all wrong. <laughs> well, no, I don't think, I don't think it's wrong. I just think it's it's just just a way to look at it. You know, as you as we started out this 
you know, with this whole podcast, breed what you like, breed the goats that make you happy. You take care of them. So breed those, breed those animals. So, you know, I, I, I hope I, our goal with this today, I, I feel was just to give you some food, food for thought. Think about, you know, okay, I've got a whole herd of goats here now. How do, how do I decide who to, who to keep and, and what's my philosophy behind what I'm doing? Because, you know, what works for you, Cameron, may not necessarily work for me. And You're exactly versa. right. And I think that's a great way to end it. Um, just, just for this episode, it's just food for thought. And honestly, I want to I shout out to my fiance for um, helping me think about this topic because um, we uh, – we didn't have a topic obviously coming in this week, but uh, I think it's a very good topic that um, doesn't really get thought of. And um, sometimes it doesn't, you know, if you're an established breeder, sometimes you don't reflect on this as often as you should, or if you're getting new, you, you probably haven't even thought about what your breeding philosophy is you're going to be, or if you've just started out. Exactly. Um, speaking of topics, I'm, I am excited about our topic for next week too. Yes. Laura, we you are- tell everybody. I will. We are going to have um, Janice Reese, who is a uh, dairy goat breeder in the Kansas City area, and she has agreed to come on and talk to us about Golden Guernseys. Um, We all know that with uh, the coming of the new ADGA uh, registration program and all, Guernseys are supposed to be coming on board, and they have been so patient and have waited for so many years for this to finally be coming to fruition. And I know that I have a lot of questions about the Golden Guernsey breed. Um, You know, there's a lot of things that I've heard people say, and I'm thinking, really? Is that true? Is it true that they're going to show them in full coat and not be not be clipped and how is that going to work and how are judges going to discover what's underneath all that hair and it's hard um you know it it'll be interesting to find out i think more about the golden guernsey breed and and uh, what they're going to be bringing to the plate for adga yeah that sounds awesome here again i i just want to oh uh update on our schedule here so we'll be having an episode next week um obviously with our guests talking about golden Guernseys the week after we're going to be taking a holiday break. Um, so no podcast that week. And then the week after will be after new year's. Um, and we will have an episode then. Yeah. So sorry. We'll miss you guys. Yes. I hope you'll miss us, but um, <laughs> it's also good to have some time to sit with your family and not try to figure out when we're going to be able to get together uh, to, to record. And, and um, I know that, that if your family is like mine, sometimes the goats get into the way of the celebration. So uh, we hope that you have lots of time to enjoy your goat passion, but more importantly, your family and the reason for the season. Yes, absolutely. There as well. Um, uh, as always, you can find us on the Facebook um, goat gab. Uh, you can listen to us on Spotify and Apple podcast and anchor website. And there's probably some more. Um, we just don't have them figured out yet. Um, uh, but thank That's you. Right. For, but thank you for listening. We appreciate you guys. If you have any feedback at all, let us know topic ideas, um, what you want to talk about questions about goats. I know, um, looking ahead to the new year, we have an episode on new year's resolutions and then we'll talk about kidding season. And then by the time we talk about those two episodes, my kidding season will have started. So that's pretty awesome. I, I, mine won't, but I will live vicariously through you and enjoy my nice warm bed in the middle of the night that I don't have to climb out for kiddings quite yet. So it's, it's scary. <laughs> <laughs> Get that camera set up, Cameron. Yes, I gotta go. Maybe I should buy one. Huh. All right. Anyway, thank All you right. for listening. Have a great Have a day. Great week, guys. Yeah, we'll catch you week. next week. Yep.